Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge, presented by Curriculum Track, a brief retreat from your daily routine to explore the latest thinking and practices from faith-based educators and instructional leaders from all over. Join us as we swap innovative ideas geared towards promoting your school's mission, and we'll keep the conversation as fresh as you like your coffee. We're honored today to have a special guest at the Teacher's Lounge, a second-generation Holocaust survivor, Anna Salton Eisen. Both of Anna's parents survived the Holocaust as Jews living in Poland at the time of World War II and then immigrating to the United States and living as U.S. citizens afterward, raising a family, living out what many would call the American dream with little mention of their Holocaust experiences, even to their three children. Anna has devoted much of her life to exploring her parents' story and helping them bring those stories to light by way of books, museum exhibits, personal appearances, contributions to documentaries, and addressing Jewish groups and congregations and other family members of survivors and liberators alike. So now, even though her parents have both passed on, and perhaps because of that, Anna is as devoted as ever to share her stories, their stories of the Holocaust, with new generations who need a frame of reference for this dark period in world history. So Anna, I'd like to highlight the living resource that you are to educators in our network. For that reason, it's a pleasure to have you join us today in the Teacher's Lounge. Welcome. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here and share my story and share my parents' story. Yeah, and it's great to have you. So as we record this today, we have it just for reference for our listeners. We have an event planned where you will share more about the resources that you've put together. And I'll invite our listeners to check out the events page on CurriculumTrack.com. So we're not going to dig too much into the books that you've written and so forth. Great resources. We will reference those a little bit. As I said in the intro, though, I want to focus on your story, why it is that you do what you do. And I hope that that's okay as we kind of dig into that side of your work. Absolutely. You've lived some experiences that many of us have just tried to understand and tried to learn the lessons of the Holocaust as a child of the survivor or survivors, both of your parents surviving that period of history, it's really just outside of our own understanding for most of us to try to grasp that. You make yourself and the books and the videos and the other resources that you've put together available to educators and clubs and even congregations and news organizations in a variety of ways so that people can learn more. Let's start there. Where would people go to learn more about who you are and what you do? Share with us your website as a resource. Sure. So my website is AnnaSaltonEisen.com. Okay. And as you said, I share my story as a resource. I've been going and speaking at synagogues, at churches, to schools. I'm doing a lot of educator training, also corporate work, and excited that I've been invited to speak at some large military bases and Actually, the National Convention of the 82nd Airborne, which was the American unit that liberated my father from his 10th and final concentration camp. Yeah. And I'm going to have a hard time staying focused because there's so many different paths to take. Two questions come to mind right away. First of all, I just want to set the stage. Why do you do what you do? What's your elevator pitch? The reason that you devote your time and your energy to sharing these stories and making them available. What value do you hope that it brings to our society today? Well, I think that the Holocaust is a unique and extremely important part of world history. I think that the lessons are many. And when I was growing up, I didn't know anything about my parents. I didn't know about their background. I didn't know their real names. I didn't really know what it meant that they were Holocaust survivors. So I really had no family history, no real identity. And when I would ask my father questions about why we had no relatives, 
he would just say, it's a sad story. Let's talk about something else. And so as a child, I learned to take these cues and keep the silence. But I heard some words like boxcars and camps, and that just compelled me to start a search on my own through the middle school library and high school. I began to ask more questions that culminated when I confronted my father as a young adult and traveled with him back to Poland. I feel that I have a responsibility, especially now that my parents have passed, to keep this story alive and share it with people because their individual stories are not in any history books. And that's Mm -hmm. why I recorded it because so few from his town, from his labor group, survived. Yeah. So share with us just in a nutshell, because we could spend a long time here and you've written (laughs) books about it, but how would you give us an overview of both of your parents' life stories? They both grew up in Poland, but didn't know each other until they were in the United States. Is that correct? Correct. My father was living in a small Polish town. His father was a lawyer. He had one brother. His mother was a homemaker. And after September 1939, with the Nazi invasion, um, they lived under occupation, which was very difficult with increasing restrictions and anti-Semitism. And after two years, they were relocated to the ghetto. Everyone in the ghetto, except for a group of about 500 young men, including my father, were put on boxcars and all sent to the Belgians' extermination camp, where they were all gassed and murdered. And thus became my father's odyssey through 10 concentration camps with this group in Germany, Poland, and France, including being in a secret tunnel the Nazis had in France. Then on May 2nd, 1945, he was liberated by the Americans. And after two years waiting to find a relative in America, he came to the United States and began his life here, including serving in the U.S. Army Uh and continuing his education. My mother was from a small Polish town in eastern Poland. And in the summer of 1939, she was visiting an aunt in Warsaw. So she was there when Warsaw was bombed and stayed there. She was blonde and was on the non-Jewish part of town where she could bring messages to the Jewish part. Once they started building the ghetto wall, which the Nazis put up a 10-foot wall around this terrible ghetto, she went into hiding for a while, went east and was sent to Siberia. Then after the war, she joined a group called the Bricha, which means escape. It was her mission to go and look for those children that had been hidden, including those by Irena Sendler, a famous Polish Catholic heroine who saved many Jewish children, almost 2,500 of them. My mother had the job to go and look for these orphans, bring them back, and then help to smuggle them across the borders from Poland, Italy, Czechoslovakia, mostly to Germany, where they would try and get on ships to go to Israel. Mm. Wow. So you've written a book about your father's experiences. I don't know if you have a book planned about your mother's experiences, but they both are heroic in their own and yet extremely different. Your father survived 10 concentration camps, mostly because his group kept moving away from the allies, right? Is that one of the reasons he moved as much as he did? Yes, they moved them around to escape from the Allies with the factory equipment, but also he was young and he was with a group of friends, people he met in the camp, and they supported each other. If they only had one piece of bread, then they would share it. If one of them was discouraged, they would give each other encouragement and hope, and they would lean on each other and roll call when they stood for hours. That was very important to have others that you could rely on 
and his faith and a lot of luck because the majority of people, as we know, did not survive. Even of his group of 450, at the end of the war, maybe only 25 were still alive. Yeah. Wow. That's astounding. As you read his story, you recognize some of the concentration camp names, some of the familiar names that we've heard in other contexts, but then there's several other that are more obscure that he was part of, but all of them just miserable and the experience that he shares there. We'll dig into that a little bit more. But what impresses me as we return to your story is that growing up, your parents, I think quite honorably, tried to avoid that darkness. And it seems to me provide a quote unquote, whatever that means, normal life for their children. Yet the trauma still seeped in to your family history, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, my parents, my father especially was grieving. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had a picture of his parents hidden in his sock drawer. I think that one time he said, if I begin to talk about them and even the good memories, it will lead me down a path toward times of great destruction and sorrow and pain. And so just like a lot of American soldiers, they were urged to come back, make peace with the past and move on. So I think that whole generation, at least in America, did not talk about it. I have met many children of American soldiers who said that also their fathers didn't talk about it. They said that it changed them and that it was just horrific to, you know, and here's the lesson of the worst of mankind, which hopefully will inspire us to behave as the best of mankind and really love each other and take care of each other in the ways that I think life is intended to be. Yeah. And somehow through that, you started to recognize that there was parts of the story you weren't hearing, relatives you weren't hearing mentioned, family names and so forth. So you started out on your own journey to find out that story and to try to bring peace to your parents through understanding their story. Would you share with us, you write about this in your book, The Pillar of Salt. Would you share that portion from the prologue where you explain how this all came to the surface eventually? Maybe set the scene. I think you're at this point married, you had small children, but you had a chance to return to visit your parents without the rest of your family, your husband and children. And this is kind of what happened. Is that the case? Yes, I'd actually organized a conference of children of survivors with someone from New York and California. And we came together and some of them were starting to make trips or hire genealogists. And I was quite excited. I thought my father would want this, that I was interested and that maybe we could find some answers or some documents. And so- You're trying to help. (laughs) I was trying to help. And so here's how it went. After we finished lunch, My mother began clearing the dishes, and my father asked me to go outside with him just because it was such a beautiful day. As we headed towards the door, I began telling him about a Jewish genealogist that I heard about at the conference. For a few thousand dollars, this person would travel to my father's ancestral home in Poland and spend several days tracing and documenting our family roots. They would make us a videotape of how the town looked today and bring us photocopies of any family documents including birth, marriage, and death certificates that might remain in the town's municipal archives. My father stopped me at the doorway and reacted with a surprising burst of anger. That's ridiculous, he said. Why would you waste your money on some silly pieces of paper that mean nothing? Everyone is dead and everything is gone and there's nothing you can do to bring anyone or anything back. Why would we care about a town that turned on us and ran us out into the hands of the Nazis? 
Still, I said, I could have something with our family's name on it, something to show that those people existed. He suddenly looked very hurt and upset. He took a deep breath before he spoke. I am Adam, he said in a voice that shook like thunder. Nothing came before me. Everything and everyone is gone, and it all starts over with me. I felt my own pain and anger well up and rise from inside me. You're not Adam, I shouted back. You had a family. Just because you refused to speak of them doesn't mean they didn't exist. All I know about your mother, my grandmother, that you name me after, is that she died in the gas chamber, and that isn't enough. For a moment, we stood speechless, looking at each other with tears in our eyes. For the first time, I wasn't just his little girl. I was an adult, standing there with my father, trying to find out the truth of his past. And suddenly I realized that his past was also my own. I went into the den and came back with a yellow legal pad and a pen. Tell it to me, I said. I don't know anything. Tell me the names of the people in your family. Tell me the names of aunts and uncles and cousins who all disappeared. Tell me the names of the towns you lived in and the names of the people you knew. Tell me the names of the 10 concentration camps you were in and what happened in each one. Tell me about my grandparents, not just how they died, but how they lived. Tell me how it began and how it ended. For God's sake, Daddy, I need to know. Tell me what they did to you. And so my journey began. And that's the powerful prologue to your book, A Pillar of Salt, A Daughter's Life in the Shadow of the Holocaust. And from that experience, from that journey, you also produced or helped your father write his story, the 23rd Psalm, Holocaust memoir. Tell me why he chose that name for his book, the 23rd Psalm. Sure. There were always two things that I felt that my father said with great authenticity. One is during the Passover Seder where we read about the Jews in exile during the time of Moses, when they would say, once we were slaves and now we are free men, because indeed he had been a slave. And the other was the 23rd Psalm, because it was also something that when he would read in a worship service, he would begin to cry. I knew that these words meant so much to him, because indeed he had been in the shadow of death, He had been at a table among his enemies. He had kept his faith. At times, it was tested, and he questioned why his parents, who were such good people, had been murdered. I think throughout his life, that psalm meant a lot to him, and he felt that David, who wrote it, must have also been through some terrible things to be able to express those feelings and those thoughts. So to him, it was a comfort that he felt understood and connected, but it also reaffirmed his faith and gave him hope. Mm -hmm. Powerful. I have my opinion on this as a former junior high teacher, high school teacher, the perspective of your father's story, the fact that he was a teenager, a preteen, a teenager during this experience. How old was he when the war broke out? So when the war broke out, he had just completed the fifth grade. He hadn't yet started the sixth grade. And so they lived in occupation from that time about 12, 13, 14, he went to the ghetto. And he wasn't in the ghetto very long, maybe just about a month before everyone was sent away. He became a prisoner of the first concentration camp, which was built right there at the ghetto from the age of 14 to 17. So yes, during those years, he was 
indeed an orphan and living in these most horrific circumstances. Yeah. So my question, I got distracted in my question, and you helped me answer it, is what does his story bring that a lot of stories of the Holocaust don't bring? I think his perspective as a junior high, high school aged boy living through that experience is so powerful. And I think inviting to the students who are also about that age when we teach that in junior high and high school. So I think that's one thing that this story brings. But what else do you think is unique about your father's story and perspective on the Holocaust? Well, as he would say, when he wrote, he tried to be in the moment, mm-hmm. tried to write from the perspective of when he was 14, when he had to learn, when you lined up for soup, how to not be at the front or not in the back, which might give you an empty cauldron or the water on top how to march in a group of fives and stand in the middle to avoid a beating. So he tried to be very much present in the moment and express what he felt and went through at that age. There's no foreshadowing, little did we know what was going on here or there. And people who have read it have expressed that they felt that they were walking in his shoes. And indeed, as you know, I went in search of people he was in the camps with many who didn't know their parents' story, but whose parents' names were in my father's book. Mm -hmm. And for them, it also gave them that immediacy that my father could somehow go back in his memory and share what he felt, what was in his heart, what his hopes and dreams were, and also his fears and his despair going through this terrible ordeal. Yeah. So imagining what life could be like at the very depths, the valley of the shadow of death, as described in the 23rd Psalm, what does it mean to be human, right? I was in a men's group. We were talking the other day about a friendship for adult men. What does it look like? And immediately your father's definition of a friend popped in my mind. (laughs) A friend is someone you can trust not to take your shoes while you sleep. I shared that with the group, but I thought how powerful to talk about what does it mean to be a friend? when you're in the middle of your own struggle to survive. So many different elements in this story that I think are powerful to share and to make people aware of. Yeah, I mean, I recall there was one scene where he is receiving a beating and he locks eyes with another young prisoner, a Christian who was a Norwegian. And it was just that moment of connection Mm -hmm. that he was seeing that, encouraged that there was this look between them that just was a look of understanding and that somehow it has to start with that, that we at least don't look away, Mm -hmm. that we see other people, that we try and understand what they're going through and that if it matters to us and we make those connections, then it can really save another person's life. Yeah. Yeah. I was gripped again, trying to see it through a student's eyes, but also through my own life experiences how your father described, I think it's in the first chapter, just what school looked like as a Jew in Poland, preoccupation, and how there were some misunderstandings and misconceptions about who he was and who his family was. And his dad had to go down and set the teacher straight, I think, one time. That slowly progressed throughout the beginning of the occupation beyond from just being an outsider in the classroom to no longer being invited to go to school, to the synagogue and the books being burned, to neighbors turning their back on 
your father and his family during their time of need. They weren't even able to provide for themselves during that time. A few heroes popped up and stepped in and helped, but that was the rare occasion. That wasn't the norm. I was sitting there as I was reading that, personalizing it, internalizing, asking myself, what would I do? How would I react? I think that's what's so gripping about your father's experience is that, as you said, it really does put you in the moment and helps you live through that experience. Well, that's part of what I like to bring to the classroom, to the teachers and the students, is that this was something that got worse over time. When we hear about the Nuremberg Laws, the restrictions that were first instituted in Germany and then brought to Poland right away, there were, of course, such things that Jews couldn't have civil service jobs. They couldn't be treated by non-Jewish doctors. Jewish children couldn't go to school. If Jews walked on the sidewalk and a German approach, they had to step off and take off their cap. But also such things that Jews couldn't have radios. They couldn't have typewriters. They couldn't have over a certain amount of money. They couldn't have pets. So this whole process of dehumanization occurs with this taking away of all these rights. I will say that, yes, my father was sent home from school. But even before that, in the 1930s in Poland at University of Warsaw, the students had their identity papers, their student papers marked that they were not Aryan, and they were forced to sit on separate benches called ghetto benches for Jews. So there had been this undercurrent of anti-Semitism, but it was not until the Nazis came in and it was systematic and government-sponsored. Then they were identified, persecuted, segregated, isolated and then moved into the ghettos, which as they became overpopulated and there was a lot of illness, then the Nazis were in the position to come up with their final solution, which was to empty the ghettos and kill all these millions of people, including more than one and a half million children. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you share in your story, The Pillar of Salt, how as you journeyed back to Poland and some of those scenes with your father, all these years later, decades later, really, how much like me and others like me, that the Holocaust still was very a two-dimensional experience. People were profiting off of relics from the Holocaust and some of the mischaracterizations of the Jews and their practices and their customs. Maybe you could share a little bit of that. It wasn't a joyous homegoing for your father to go back and revisit that territory, obviously, all those years later. No, and this is why, to me, it's so important to share the history because it's so rich and personal. After the war, there were these displaced person camps that were set up, mostly in Germany and Austria, run by the Allies, the Americans and the British, and especially the Americans. Eisenhower came to Warsaw, to Poland, and declared all the American zone liberation camps would be a haven for Jews. But in Poland, it was not safe for Jews to go back to return to their homes. There was still violence. There was a famous pogrom, which is a night of violence in a town called Kielce, where there was only 500 Jews. And in one night, there was great beatings and violence, and many of them were killed. From that point, that was a big turning point, that Jews started to flee Poland. It was still a lot of anti-Semitism. People had moved into my father's house. They were eating off their dishes, sleeping in their beds. So when we returned to Poland and went back to these places and went back to his home, we were the first Jews to return to his town. Many said, oh, there was never a synagogue here. There was never Jews there. 
And I remember once we went to the death camp where his parents had died and they were actually excavating the camp. The archaeologist in front of it told me that he asked the locals, what did you think when they were bringing the Jews here and killing them? And their response was, it was good. So I think it was, for my father, difficult, emotional, but I think he also gleaned a lot of strength by being with us, with his children, and on the second trip with the grandchildren, and just feeling that he was doing his duty to bear witness, to give testimony. That's why I feel like it is a blessing to have these people as my parents, but it's also a responsibility that I take this seriously and make sure that these stories go on because there's very few survivors. I think that as a child of Holocaust survivors, because I had these personal experiences, I want to be able to share them in a way that hopefully can connect with people and touch them and open them up to this emotional learning experience. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about what you're doing currently. We have the books. We've talked about those, but that's not all that you're doing. Let's focus a little bit on the books. One of them, tell me which one was approved for use in public schools in Texas and maybe a few other states as well? Sure. So Pillar of Salt, which is my book, the second book that I co-wrote with my son, has been approved in the state of Texas for use in schools. We are making a documentary film also geared toward younger people. So it's got full color, some animation and artwork, original music. So that's in the works. What I'm doing is I'm speaking and sharing the story at synagogues, at churches. I've been to all different faith-based groups, large Catholic churches, non-denominational, Presbyterian, Methodist, and sharing the story because I feel that the churches play a huge role in taking this and turning it into a lesson about character, kindness, sharing those messages. There are a lot of biblical references in Pillar of Salt. Again, the title was chosen from that. And then also speaking at schools, I just today had a classroom that watched a recorded presentation, and then I zoomed in for 20 minutes for questions, as well as doing educator training, which I'm doing for large organizations, also the state of Maine, in Louisiana, in Texas and Tennessee, working with those groups, also doing corporate. I'm doing a hospital group that has 21 hospitals, 30,000 employees, as well as military bases. So book clubs, rotaries, just trying to continue the work of sharing the lessons, bringing it into classrooms. I find that there's so many teachers that are so inspired. They inspire me because they have a lot of passion. They're creative in what they do. For example, my father's artwork in the book and in his life, he was an artist or his drawings, which are at the U.S. Holocaust Museum and in Poland, the Holocaust Memorial and Museum are on my website. And he donated them to the museum with the conditions that there's no restrictions. So educators can download them, use them as prompts in the classroom, use them in art classes, And the same with the documents. I have a lot of Nazi documents and lists and everything is to be shared. I speak, I don't accept any fees and this is just kind of my calling. I went to one school in San Antonio, Texas where I spoke to a thousand students, but that is not always possible. So I really want to have teachers and educators feel that they can email me, set up a Zoom schedule, send me a link, 
Some teachers have asked if the students write letters, would I write back? And I said, you know, format them into one letter with multiple questions. And absolutely, I will write back to them and try and keep an ongoing relationship. I still meet people, including a local superintendent of schools and a local pastor who both said, I remember 20 years ago when your father came and spoke in the middle school, and now those kids are 31 and 35 years old, but it had a lifelong impact. And so I'm trying to just continue the message. And I think that it is these next generations that we have to make sure that they understand what the history was. And as you said, there's many subjects, including drama, that it can be introduced, music. We went to one university where someone wrote a symphony piece based on the story. They were inspired in art classes. Not only can they look at my father's art, but they can take a piece of the story that maybe touches them and create their own art to go along with it. So I think that there's a lot of ways. And I think that if we look at our future leaders, teachers, parents in any field, caregivers, having compassion, understanding how the small things that we do can really change and even save a life. Yeah. Yeah. What I like to say, and you can correct me, maybe you have a better way of saying this, but this is not just a sub point in the World War II chapter in our history textbook. There are so many different applications of the firsthand experience story of your father. It's very engaging and very compelling read. I enjoyed it. And even your story, very useful in a wide variety of contexts outside of the history class, language, arts, religion, Bible, a lot of different contexts that you can use this information. Art, as you mentioned, I'm glad you brought that up. So great work, a great resource for people to take advantage of. And how valuable to even do a meet the author kind of event with your students, that could be really helpful as well. So I hope people will begin dreaming as I am. I'm not in the classroom right now, but I'm thinking of all the different ways I could use a resource like you, someone who's just, as you said, made it your calling to keep the story out there and to help other people benefit from it. So thank you for that. In my father's story, there were many Christians, many that did small things that really saved his life. They showed him kindness. They did not act with cruelty, even though that was the norm. And so those are the things when my father would speak about that would make him cry the most. It was acts of kindness that he remembered and touched him, not the acts of enslavement and the bitter cruelty that he experienced as well. Mm -hmm. And it's not just history. It's not over. Bigotry, hatred, prejudice... The worst of humanity is still alive and present in our world today. It's not just the history for you. It's not just your parents' experience. You've lived it in your own life. Do you mind sharing a little bit about that experience when you moved to Texas? Sure. Well, what happened is when I came back from Poland, I lived in a community where there were some Jews and no house of worship. Here I had gone and toured a country with empty synagogues and no Jews. So I felt that I was inspired to come back and create a faith community, a place to worship. At first, we were blessed that so many local churches invited us into their sanctuary. And my father, I remember him saying, this never would have happened in Poland. For him, that was even a sign of redemption and healing, that we were welcome into different churches and faith communities. I had to go back and relearn the Hebrew letters so that I could become a Hebrew teacher and pass on the lessons and restudy the Bible myself. I got my first star of David necklace because I had learned to kind of be invisible from my father up until then. 
And then, of course, in January of 2022, the synagogue I founded, I was first president of, was the one where a gunman came from Manchester, England, on a very cold Saturday morning in the middle of a worship service, came in and held my rabbi and three friends hostage for a terrible long day, thinking that the same anti-Semitic tropes, Jews control the media, control the banks and the press, and that by holding us hostage, he would get a terrorist who was in a federal prison about 30 minutes from us released from prison, which didn't happen. It just showed us that anti-Semitism is a current event. We now have to have armed guards when we gather to pray. It is a scary thing and it makes us very sad, but we have to be realistic and understand that hate can lead to violence. And that's why we have to stomp it out at the hatred and not wait. People always ask, I've done a lot of media interviews and they say, how is your congregation? Are you healed? I'm also a licensed therapist. So I say, well, the first step in healing from trauma is to experience safety. And we don't feel safe. We are not there yet. As an author, I've gotten lots of hateful anti-Semitic messages emails, social media. I even went to a church and they promoted it on their social media and they got some threats that made them concerned enough to have to call law enforcement. But they said, wow, this makes us realize why this is so important and also helps us to understand what it must feel like to have to go to pray and make sure all the doors are locked and that there's a guard outside with a gun and that we have panic buttons and security cameras inside and outside. But this is the reality of what we live in. There are people today who honor the Nazi flags, who honor Hitler. I don't think they understand that when they do that, they really dishonor the American flag, dishonor our military and our history. I'm not sure we can get through to those hate groups, but there's a lot of other people that we can still try and create unity with to try and fight this. That's why I love the work that you're doing with other survivors or children of other survivors and even the liberators and the children of the liberators telling those stories, amplifying the stories of self-sacrifice and service and connection and devotion and unity and friendship even. Share with us a little bit about that and some of the work that you've done along those lines. Well, I've always been raised to be patriotic and grateful for the liberation. I had a wonderful time that I spent as a very active volunteer with the USO before I went back to graduate school. And yes, I was just astounded that my father's camp was liberated by about seven or eight soldiers on a patrol from the 504th that came across the camp accidentally. And one of the soldiers, one of the seven or eight, lived right in my community. I read about him in the paper and introduced my father to him, and they became friends. They even traveled to Europe together, where they went back to the camp where they met across the barbed wire. And just this past Labor Day, I flew to DC to Arlington National Cemetery to attend his funeral. I last saw him when he was 101. He died at 103. So I got to go, and it was really important and meaningful to me to pay my respects. He's actually been nominated for all kinds of awards, the Medal of Honor. There's others as well that I've met. That's why I'm going to be going to speak at the National Convention of the 82nd Airborne. I've been twice before. There's some World War II veterans that I'm really honored to meet and thank on behalf of my father. 
So yes, I've met children of them and children of survivors. A lot of the children of survivors had my same experience. Their parents didn't talk. Now they are left with a lot of questions. So I think I'm very, very fortunate that my father did go back with me and did pass on the story. And I have his recorded testimonies as well as my mother's that I'm still learning from today. I'm doing a lot of research. We are planning on doing another biography, I guess, so to speak, of my mother. And we're just finding out all kinds of incredible things about her and her experiences, even since she passed last July at the age of 100. So she had a very full, blessed life with my father. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the fact that you make this story accessible. I think that's really helpful because the hatred isn't gone. The bigotry isn't gone. It's still present and we can access it and discuss it through this historical perspective that you're making so accessible to schools and you make yourself accessible as well. And so I thank you for your work. Thank you for the stories that you're sharing and thank you for your father and his heroism and bravery to just confront his own story and share that for the good of other people. So thank you for your time today. It's been great to have you in the teacher's lounge. And I'll make a plug here for us. We're going to have your son, Aaron, who is highly involved with that film. He's picking up the mantle and carrying it forward in other ways based on his giftedness and strengths and the things that he likes to do. We're going to have him on to talk about that process in the near future as well. So I'm excited to look forward to that. In the meantime, we'll invite people to your website. It's just your name, AnnaSaltonEisen.com. Check it out and find out what Anna can bring to your classroom. Thanks again. So Anna, tell us if a teacher wanted to go to your website and find a resource that they could pull into their instruction or drop into their class at any given moment. I know you have several resources out there that they would be able to find helpful. Would you just outline some of those, share with us what you have there that teachers might find helpful? Sure. Well, in addition to my father's artwork that can be downloaded and shared, some of the lists and documents from his different experience in Nazi concentration camps. There's also a recorded presentation. It's 25 minutes long, and it's the one that I give live. It has my father's original artwork, authentic Nazi documents, photographs from our journey back to Poland, stories about the 10 concentration camps, my reunion with children of survivors and liberators. This can be downloaded and shared, or there's a YouTube link in any classroom. It's free of charge. We also are just finishing production. It will be on the website soon about Irena Sendler, who was a Polish Catholic social worker, and her work, a very famous in trying to hide approximately 2,500 Jewish children from the Warsaw Ghetto. Then it links into my mother's story, who after the war was working to go and find these hidden children and bring them back to the Jewish community. So both of these are approximately 25 minutes and they can just be shown in your classroom anytime. They're just an individual, unique view. They're age appropriate. You can feel free to contact me if you want me to do a Zoom visit to the class or assist you in any other kind of way, or even come visit in person. That sounds great. And I think, and you don't have to make any official announcements here, but I think you have plans to even expand on those resources over time and support educators in even additional ways into the future. Yeah, we're starting to do a lot of teacher training now for big organizations, for different Holocaust museums and schools, but we are going to be planning to have a special educator page where you can go and there will be some resources, teaching guides, and different ideas. And we're hoping that teachers will also 
engage with us and maybe share how they have used the resources. But we want to be educator friendly. Same with the upcoming film that's based on both books. Our biggest goal and audience that we're hoping to reach are the next generations. Thanks again. It's been my pleasure and honor to be here. Thanks for dropping by the Curriculum Track Teachers Lounge today. We hope this conversation helped you feel more connected to like-minded educators and provided you with a thought, an idea, or even just a smile as you seek to do all that you can for all of your students. If you found this conversation to be helpful, do us a favor and rate this podcast. Also be sure to share it with others. We would be grateful to hear from you with any ideas, questions, or thoughts that you may have. You can find ways to connect with us at curriculumtrack.com.